should wait to come out, that you should uh, try to gain rank or status before you do that. That's a bunch of bull It's a new day in the music industry, and I can reach my fans. We're getting there. I've caused harm to the political agenda, and which I'm actually happy for. I would say probably the best message to them is that they're on the wrong side of history. Whether you're lesbian, gay, bi, transgender, or whatever, Love is love. Shout it out to the world. The Michelle Miao Show. Your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. And now here's your host, Michelle Miao. Welcome to the show. It's Friday, so that means I'm out. And it's also hashtag FOF or FOF. Friends on Fridays. This Friday, we will broadcast John Zipper's week to week show. The program today is brought to you by Pacific Fertility Center. When life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. And now here's Week to Week with John Zipperer. I'm John Zipperer, the host of the Commonwealth Club's Week to Week Politics Program. You can find out more about Week to Week and all of the Commonwealth Club's many programs, including videos and audio, at CommonwealthClub.org. Now let's join this week's program. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Forum. I'm Sandra Fluke, and I am so pleased to be in conversation with Wendy Davis, a former senator from the state of Texas, a feminist hero and icon, and author of Forgetting to Be Afraid. Thank you so much for joining me, Wendy. Thank you, Sandra. I'm delighted to be here with someone as courageous and strong as you are. I truly am. Very kind of you. <laughs> And thank you to all of you for joining us this evening. So Wendy and I know each other a little bit um, through some strange common shared experiences. <laughs> but for this evening, rather than my questions to her being, so what's new with you or us comparing notes about who'd been called what on social media lately, <laughs> I thought it might be more interesting for all of you if I took the time and read her book, which I think many of you are probably looking forward to. So I found something very surprising as I was uh, beginning to read through part of her biography, um, and that is you were married to Frank Underwood. I was. Do you all know who Frank Underwood is? <laughs> How many of you watch House of Cards? Frank Underwood, the, the diabolical, incredible character. So my question to you is, are you actually the model for Claire Underwood, the character? <laughs> I hope not, actually. <laughs> She's a little too ruthless for my blood. Although, There's definitely some mixed bag yes, on those characters. Definitely. It is true, my first husband's name was Frank Underwood, indeed. <laughs> That's all you're going to tell? You're not going to reveal anything That's more? That's pretty much it. Yeah. That's it. <laughs> so supposedly it's some other Frank Underwood, but as you probably all suspect, there are many conspiracy theories about Wendy, so maybe this is just one more to add to the list. Um, now, I wanted to begin by asking you about the women in your family, because as you'll all find out in, in her book, she has some incredible women in her family who I really, do. I think, influenced you and were tremendous role models, and you mm. share a little bit of them with all of us. Yeah, so, 
I've been talking a lot about our shoes, where we come from, uh, the stories that our shoes have to tell about us. And in fact, on the second anniversary of the filibuster, we did a little hashtag called My Soul Story, and we invited people to talk about their shoes. What would your shoes say about you? And I thought about that because I had been thinking about giving a speech and how I was going to introduce the topic of the impact that my grandmother and my mother had in my life. And so I describe it by talking about their shoes. My grandmother uh, was married very, very young when she was 13 and my grandfather was 17. They eloped in Arkansas where they did not have to have permission from their parents to marry. And they came back across the Texas Panhandle when she was 15 and he was 19. She had literally in her arms, in their horse and buggy, my Uncle Will. And on her feet, she had a very old pair of leather lace-up, low-heeled, sturdy shoes that said just about everything you needed to know about my grandmother. I have so many amazing memories of her. She was half Native American. She was always poor. And she understood the double sting of both racism and poverty. She and my grandfather had 14 children. And my mother was one of only two girls, 12 boys. My grandmother had a sixth grade education and my grandfather had a fourth grade education. And they were tenant farmers. And they traveled from the panhandle of Texas, Oklahoma, and parts of California, always farming other people's land. My grandmother and grandfather actually weren't able to buy their first home until they went on social security because it was the first time in their lives that they had a stable enough income to actually qualify for a loan. And they always lived so humbly, but so richly at the same time. When my parents divorced, I was, or they were going through their divorce when I was 10, and I started the habit of spending summers with my grandmother. And I learned what it meant to have a real work ethic because that woman would wake up in the morning and start working. She always had a huge garden in her backyard because it was all she ever knew. And I got to experience what it was like to farm the land, to can vegetables, to just be filled with the busyness of doing good hard work and the rest that comes at the end of the day from doing something like that. And my mother, um, because she was part of such a large family and responsible for so much of the, the chores of her family, being one of only two girls, my mom dropped out of school um, after completing only ninth grade because she was needed at home. She was number seven of 14, and she had all those younger siblings to help with. And when my parents separated and then later divorced, my mother became our sole financial support because my father decided to live out his dream of starting a theater, a nonprofit live theater. And he never made any money again until he died. So my mother took over the sole support for us financially, four of us. She went to work at Brahms Ice Cream and Dairy Store. And what I remember most about my mother um, in those days was not only that orange and white Brahms ice cream and dairy store uniform that she wore, but the white orthopedic comfort shoes that she wore. <laughs> and they say so much about her, you know, that she was willing to 
put those shoes on and do what it took to take care of her family. And so when I think about the day that I laced up my tennis shoes and stood on the Senate floor, I think about all the times that they laced up and strapped on their shoes intent on the purpose of creating a better life for me than they had for themselves. And they definitely did. And they made a huge impact on me. Absolutely. Well, you spoke about some of the, the really positive things from, from your family and from growing up, but you've actually overcome some pretty incredible challenges. Uh, I, I won't sort of spoil all of the details for those of you who haven't read the book yet, but uh, Wendy's a very, very strong woman, and uh, that doesn't come from not facing some challenges, right? So can you tell us how that operated for you when you were thrust into the public spotlight? Because You'd been a single mom at 19, I believe. Um, there had been some things in your background that people came after you on, criticized you on. Were there times when you felt like your story was being sort of used for political points, or did you always feel proud to talk about your background, or how was that for you? I've always been proud to talk about my background because it's so similar to the stories of so many women in America today. Um, facing the challenges of raising a child on your own, um, facing the challenges of what it's like to be undereducated and trying to support yourself and a child, and having the fear of not being able to climb out of the deep hole of poverty. There's so many Americans who can tell that same story today. What was upsetting and very difficult for me in my gubernatorial campaign was that a story I had always been so proud of, that I'd had these struggles, that I found my way to community college, that I worked two jobs while I was going to community college and taking care of my daughter on my own, that I got a scholarship to TCU, and ultimately made my way into Harvard Law School. Those were things I was very proud yeah. of. And yet, somehow, that became a negative for me in that gubernatorial campaign. There were questions about when I used the word single mother. I, like so many women, understood that I was single when I took over the responsibility for raising my child on my own. My divorce wasn't actually final until I was 20. And so there was this big brouhaha mm -hmm. that I was lying about being a teenage single mother. Um, there was a great deal of criticism about the fact that I had gone to Harvard while trying to balance the responsibilities of my then two-year-old and eight-year-old daughter. And I understood that as something that, if I had been a male candidate, would probably have been applauded. But because I was a woman, somehow that became a negative. And it took on a life of its own. It was a big story on Fox News for a long time. <laughs> and I you know, reaped the repercussions of that throughout the remainder of my campaign. And I'll have to say, you know, all's fair in love and politics. I truly believe that. Um, it's just when the two intersect that things get dangerous. Yeah. Um, but it, it, it was very skillful um, of my opponent's team to do that because they took my greatest strength and they tried to turn it into a weakness. And in the, the eyes of some voters, they succeeded. Well, I have to say, as I was reading through the book, I was just 
tremendously impressed with uh, over and over again the your accomplishments and there was only one time when I thought to myself this woman might be crazy <laughs> and that was when you decided to go to Harvard Law School with a two-year-old and eight-year-old in tow and the husband stayed back home in Texas and I thought she might be crazy and he might be a jerk but I'm not sure <laughs> So tell us about, about that process of trying to be a parent to two kids yeah. while you're in law school. Well, I'm not crazy and he's not a jerk. This is good one. news. <laughs> I'm, I'm happy to um, have been proven wrong. <laughs> it's a decision that we made as a family. I truly believed I could take the girls with me and make a go of it. And I did my first semester with both of my girls there. It was so challenging yeah. because I was telling someone on the plane that I was talking to today, by the time I would get into my desk at 8.30 in the morning, in the most competitive academic mm -hmm. environment you can imagine, I had gotten a two-year-old and an eight-year-old up and dressed and fed. A two-year-old dropped at a nursery school. An eight-year-old dropped at her school. Mm -hmm. A bus ride to the train the train into campus and I would finally get to my desk and I was, uh, you know, exhausted already. Um, and it was really an overwhelming time because I had no support, yeah. um, no family, no friends to help with the girls. And it was hard for me, but it was really hard for them too, because they had been accustomed to not living that kind of a harried mm. life. So when I came home at Christmas and I saw the girls really kind of calm back into themselves and settle back into themselves, my former husband Jeff and I made the decision that we would try it with the girls at home. And my mother agreed, my incredible mother agreed to become our nanny. And she did that. And so for the remainder of my first year, I would go to school for 10 days at a time and come home for five, with a few exceptions where the schedule just didn't allow that. And I did that all of second year as well. And then in third year, I would go to school for about two weeks at a time and come home for two weeks at a time. And thankfully, at Harvard Law School, we didn't have mandatory attendance. And so um, I was able, with the help of my amazing friends that I made in law school who shared notes with me from all of our classes, I was able to make it work. Did you hear that, folks? We can add to the list, she skips class. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, you did some incredible work after law school. While you were in law school, you uh, worked at a legal aid clinic and represented some folks in some truly inspiring stories and uh, started a legal career, a successful legal career. But let's skip to the juicy stuff, the politics. <laughs> um, so you started off running for the city council, right? And you know, I know that one thing you're really passionate about and devoting a lot of time to and thinking about a lot now is women in politics and, and in elected office and leadership and uh, why we don't have 50% to say the least and, and how that works differently for women and all of those challenges. So I wanted to ask you about your entry. Folks say that women have to be asked on average six times to run for office before they actually do it. Was that the case for you? Did you have people asking and asking and asking, or were you just like power hungry and wanted to get in there? I just, I just threw myself in there. And I wasn't- Power wasn't, hungry, got it. It wasn't power hungry, it was frustration because I had been active in my neighborhood on a mm -hmm. particular issue that had taken me to City Hall a few times, and I was frustrated with what I 
was observing there. And a seat opened up unexpectedly, and I just threw my hat in the ring. I, I made the decision and then told Jeff that I was doing it. Yeah. Um, but he was a great mentor to me because he had been on the city council mm -hmm. when he was much younger. And he was someone that I really looked up to, you know, and his experience of serving there was something that I decided that I'd like to try to do myself. And as you know, I did lose that first race. I wasn't going to bring it up, but all right. <laughs> well, so do you, do you think that was the right step to run that first time? Because you talk about in, in your book that you hadn't necessarily laid some of the groundwork in the community right. that, that it might have been wise to have done beforehand. And... We'll be back with more here on Friends on Fridays with John Zipperer of Commonwealth Club right after this. Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on by joining our community. Each week, we send out an email that covers important things taking place in the Progressive Voices Network and throughout the progressive world. Be the first to know of upcoming shows, schedule changes, exclusive programming, and more. Simply go to ProgressiveVoices.com and sign up for our mailing list. It's that easy. ProgressiveVoices.com. Thanks for listening, and thanks for joining the Progressive Voices community. Babe. I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? <laughs> Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. After many years of dating, Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say I do, especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. A special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. One of the things that's often said about uh, women in electoral races is that we wait for the perfect time, that we get everything in a row and we never dive in, and as a result, some of us never get there. Mm -hmm. What's your advice to, to young women and your perspective on, on this question of waiting for the perfect path versus yeah. diving right in? Consequences be darned. We're on radio, darned, right? Somewhere in between, I think, is, is the right approach. What I learned from my first race by just diving in was that people who I was asking to vote for me, and local elections are, are very unique. You know, the people who are voting for you, they've had a chance to, or they want to have had a chance to meet you and know you. And when you're running for a seat like that, if you haven't really been active in the community, and people don't know anything more about you than what they see, it's hard for them to believe that you really have their best interests at heart. And so when I lost, I lost in a runoff by 90 votes. And it was heartbreaking. It was the first time I'd ever not succeeded at something that I'd tried really hard to do. 
but I put my head down and I got involved in the community and I started working on a number of things in various neighborhoods and arenas. And when I ran again three years later, I was able to succeed. And I loved that seat so much. I served in it for nine years before I ran for the Senate. And I would encourage any, anyone, woman or man, who's considering running for mm -hmm. office, starting at the local level is such a beautiful way to do it because you are, as it should be, very answerable, very visible to the people who elected you. They're watching everything you do and you're working very closely with them and you learn what it means to be a true public servant. And for me, taking that experience into the Senate, I felt like was a wonderful beginning point to mm -hmm. learn how to really serve and to always have in mind in my service the people who were depending on me to do the right thing for them. Yeah. Now, the first time you lost, you talked about it was hard. She actually filed a lawsuit over this loss. Not a lot of candidates do that, but she went yeah. for it. Um, did you think about, I'm never going back out there again. I don't want to be a candidate again. That was too hard. Or were you immediately, I did. you felt like I've got to do it again? No, I did. Um, I went through that grieving period mm -hmm. of, um, and it's a feeling, it's really hard to put yourself out there and then to not be elected because it's a rejection of sorts, you know? And it's very hard not to take it very personally. Um, I honestly had a harder time losing that race than I did losing my gubernatorial race because I hadn't let, yet learned the right perspective about all of that. And how long did that grieving period take after you lost? Gosh, I mean, several months, I would say. You know, uh, I was embarrassed when I would go out mm -hmm. and I felt like I had a big fat loser stamped on yeah. my forehead. Um, but, you know, you dust yourself off and you pick yourself you go up, back out and you go back out. And you served on the city council for, for nine years, as you said. You know, I, one thing I thought was interesting, you talked a little bit about Jeff being kind of a mentor for you politically. And um, I think those of us who work in the, the political realm or are active there, realize how important political mentors are for candidates and potential candidates. But we often think about, uh, oh, I have to find a woman to be my mentor if I'm a woman. And, but your mentor was a man. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. Can you, can you speak about what kind of mentoring he was for you and, and how was that helpful? Well, he introduced me to politics. Mm -hmm. um, in our early marriage, he was 14 years older than me. In our early marriage, when we would go out to eat, people always wanted to come up to him and talk about local politics. And I was absolutely bored to death by the whole thing. <laughs> and I always resented when people did it. But after a while, I couldn't help but you know, become a part of these conversations and start being interested in it. And it really does show you that when you have someone who's leading by example, who's really talking to you about the things that are relevant in the political arena and helping you become present and aware to them, it really can uh, awaken something in you and engage you. And it really teaches us the, the importance of talking to each other about politics and you know, trying not to be combative about it, just in an educational way. And I think we need more of that in our school systems than we currently have and believe that it's probably one of the most important things we can do to uh, encourage that next group of young people to see themselves possibly running for office one day. Absolutely. 
Well, I have to say, once you got into office, I, I found uh, your, your actions as an elected official to be rather inspiring. Because um, I've had you know a number of folks sort of kindly say to me that they appreciate how how brave I was when I was thrust into the public spotlight. Well, folks, it's easy to be brave when you're not in the spotlight and you don't have anything to risk, and it's just sort of like, there you go, and you you're just uh, thrown up there. But when you're in elected office, you have things at stake. You're thinking about, yeah. well, will I lose my seat over this? If I, if I step forward on this issue, will I not be able to go on and fight for people in a bigger office? And, and you're always thinking about the, the balance, I think, mm -hmm. of, of what's at risk if you take that political risk. But when you were on the city council, you took a big political risk over housing policy. I did. Can you tell us a little bit about that, but also just about yeah. how did you weigh that risk and come to the decision about that you should go forward. I have a picture um, of myself raising my hand and taking my oath of office when I was first being sworn into the city council. And I saved that picture to look at because I remember exactly what I was saying to myself in the moment that that was happening. I was saying, I will always vote my conscience, no matter the risk, no matter the possibility of not being reelected and do the best job that I can. And I really was tested in that regard when the um, Radio Shack, which at the time was a thriving company, unfortunately not so anymore, <laughs> they were one of the most important employers. They were founded in Fort Worth, Tandy mm -hmm. Corporation. They later became Radio Shack. Their board was talking about moving outside of our city, and it would have been devastating to us in terms of our job base. And we began working with them to try to convince them to stay, but they needed a new place for their, their campus. There was simultaneously a very large housing complex, public housing complex in Fort Worth, that was looking at selling its property because they needed the money to put into other housing that they had in the, in the city. And so those two forces came together. The housing authority, which is not a city authority, it's a federal authority, but the housing authority came into an agreement with Radio Shack to sell. We were then sued by the people who live in, we weren't, the housing authority was, by the people who lived in the housing complex because they didn't want to go. And I had had an experience of working for a federal judge in Dallas who had overseen the deconcentration of public housing there. Mm -hmm. And I learned by example from him the importance of respecting the dignity and the future opportunities of the people who were in that housing. He believed strongly that you deconcentrate public housing, that you let children who are growing up in public housing go to school with kids who have parents who have gone to college and who can learn by example to aspire to things for themselves. And so that's how we did it. Um, that's how we ultimately settled that suit. We worked and worked for weeks and weeks and weeks with the residents to come up with an agreement that they could feel comfortable with in terms of where they were going to be relocated. And when we signed on the dotted line, their attorney said to me, this is all great and good and I really like you and the mayor, but when push comes to shove, and the first relocation of these residents occurs, you're not gonna be able to withstand the heat. And I kind of chuckled. I said, you know, I know that was the experience in Dallas, but this is Fort Worth. That's not gonna happen in Fort Worth. 
And Famous last words. Indeed it did. The first relocation was in my district, in a fairly affluent area of my district, in an apartment complex that the housing authority purchased with the plan to keep about 80% of it for market rate housing and 20% of it some of their public housing residents. It caused the most incredible uproar in the community. We had several huge town hall style meetings where we had to go to huge church areas because the city hall couldn't hold all of the angry people. And I had to sit and be the recipient of some of the greatest anger I have ever seen. But I stuck to my guns. And, and I have did to say, that's saying that. something. The greatest anger you've ever seen, that's, you've it, seen some. It was, it was, <laughs> it was unbelievable. Um, and it was really hard. For a long time, I couldn't go to the grocery store or the dry cleaner or any of the areas in my own neighborhood that I normally would go to because I would be confronted by mm -hmm. someone who was very, very angry and upset. At the end of the day, it worked out so beautifully. And so many of those people who were angry have come to me later mm -hmm. on and said, I was wrong. You know, this, this turned out just fine. They were afraid. They were afraid. And I understand that people do things out of fear that might not be in keeping with their normal character. And we got through it. And I'm really mm -hmm. proud that I withstood it. And it was certainly a valuable lesson for me about what it means to stand for what you believe in. And folks, she wanted more. So uh, you were then elected to the state Senate, and you may all know the famous filibuster that she conducted. You have heard of the filibuster, right? You know who I'm interviewing? Okay. <laughs> so that wasn't your first filibuster. Your first filibuster, can you tell us a little bit about that and the political consequences of that one? The first filibuster was two years prior, and it's so odd to have a chance to have two filibusters as a senator because... <laughs> In Texas, you can only filibuster a bill when you're running the clock out. So it has to be at the very end of the session. We can't just throw one out there like they do in the U.S. Senate and then go to the bathroom while other people are talking. Oh, they're very thoughtful they're, in the U.S. Senate. Let's yes, not disparage yes. the U.S. Senate. <laughs> um, so the public education funding bill even though we had a Republican majority House and Senate, they couldn't quite get it together to get that bill put together until the very end of the session. And it was cutting five and a half billion dollars from our public schools. I wanted to filibuster the bill. It came up for a vote literally the very last day of the session. I went over to the House and talked to some of our House members and they begged me can you please filibuster this? We believe if we can get this into a special session, we can get more money added. We've got some thoughts mm -hmm. and ideas. And in the House, you can't conduct a filibuster. It's only reserved for the Senate. So I went back, my Democratic caucus and I, we wound up meeting about three different times during the day. There was anger. There were tears. <laughs> there, were, there was a lot of debate, argument, passion. And a lot of my own colleagues didn't want me to do it mm -hmm. because everyone was weary from a long session. They didn't feel like we'd ultimately accomplish anything by doing it. And they tried very hard to talk me out of doing it. I informed the lieutenant governor that I made a decision that I was going to filibuster the bill as something we do as a courtesy. 
And they're very polite in Texas. Filibusters <laughs> come with warnings, evidently. <laughs> and he, you know, rightly so, moved all of the other bills forward during the day because if I had filibustered, I would have killed every bill that was behind it. So he moved everything that was in line ahead of it and called it as the final bill of the day. So it was a very short filibuster. It was about an hour 15 or something oh, like that. Oh, that doesn't even count. And that's what, my, that's what some like of my colleagues said, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, but we killed the education funding bill, and we came back in a special session, and we did make some improvement, not nearly what I would have liked to have seen, um, and some really creative opportunities, unfortunately, didn't make their way to see the light of day. But I felt like it was really important. We were in the school year, and if we could filibuster into a special session, we were going to be in the summertime frame, and the parents and the teachers who were going to be affected by this could come to the Capitol, and they did. They absolutely did. And at the very least, their voices were heard in the process, even though they were ultimately ignored. We'll be back with more here on Friends on Fridays with John Zipperer of Commonwealth Club right after this. I'm Heclina. I've been doing drag here in San Francisco for almost 20 years. And uh, over the past couple of months, I just opened up my club, Oasis. It's been going really well. People really seem to appreciate the space. It's something people say San Francisco really needs right now because the city has been changing a lot. I always had this attitude of, of opening a space that was kind of like for everybody and that's just kind of the attitude and the, the, uh, the ethics of Oasis is it's kind of a space for everybody. How does it feel to be a business owner? I don't know, you know, it's funny because I still need, I still have to kind of pinch myself to believe it's actually true, you know what I mean? Like I walk in there and and I go up to the bar and I go, oh, can I please have a glass of water? You know, it's kind of like, I forget that it's my place. Running gay clubs, it's changed a lot. Um, I think that gay people now, they're everywhere. They don't feel like they have to maybe be in a gay bar all the time. So you have to be much more creative about how you are enticing people to come out to your club. I, I guess I'm successful because I'll just say it, I work really hard at what I do. I also like to provide a really quality experience for people. So yes, you know, people will pay to see my shows and pay to come to my club, but I always like to give them something that's worth it. The experience that they'll, they'll leave my shows going, okay, that was worth it, you know what I mean? This has always been my attitude, um, just to entertain people. And so it seems like that works, you know. I would say to young kids, you know, just kind of form your own identity. And, uh, and, you know, don't let others dictate how you should behave or think. Uh, you can always go to uh, sfoasis.com to find out about all the entertainment and nightlife that we have going on at Oasis. If you want to see drag, we've got that for you. If you want to see some queer hip-hop parties or queer dance parties, we have that for you. Spotlight on success and achievement. Brought to you by Wells Fargo. Together, we'll go far. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. And everyone loved you for this, right? You were a hero. Oh. There were no consequences. So, the other thing that happened, so it's midnight. We kill the bill. No one's happy with me. Literally, no one's talking to me. 
the very next day, well, before we even got to the next day, the governor called the special session to begin at 8 a.m. the next morning. And when I walked into the Senate lounge that morning, I was persona non grata. It was not not good, fun. Not a fun time. <laughs> no, and it took a while for them to get over that and be my friend again. Well, and you said there were some efforts to redistrict you as well. There were, yes. So when I won my Senate seat in 2008, I won a Republican Senate seat, which was just unheard of. And everyone had written us off from the moment I announced, this is crazy, there's no way she can win, what is she doing? But we did two things very well. Number one, we really turned out the base vote. We had a growing minority vote in the district and we turned it out very well. It didn't hurt that President Obama was running at the same time. <laughs> and then because I had been on the city council for so long, I chaired the Economic Development Committee for a number of years. I represented downtown as part of my district. I chaired the Regional Transportation Council. I was working on a lot of economic development and business issues, and I was very close to the business community, so they didn't see me. In Texas, a lot of people think if you're a Democrat, you've got horns on your head. <laughs> they didn't see me that way. And I got a lot of crossover vote, too, from Republicans who came over and voted my way. Now, see, that is so interesting because I think nationally, as a result of your incredible filibuster, uh, you're maybe seen as someone who's pretty far on the left or a real fighter, a partisan going after the other side. And... I'm not sure that's actually who you are. Do you think that's who you are? Is it a part of who you are? Is it totally wrong about you? I, I believe always in trying to work to the middle. I truly do. Mm -hmm. But there are some moments when you've got to throw the gauntlet. I believe in that as well. And I picked my battles mm -hmm. when I did that. But I had a really good record, I felt, in both the city council and in the Senate, working across the aisle, working to try to be constructive and to get things done. And I think most of the people that have worked with me would say that about me too, privately, though it's hard for Republicans to say that about a Democrat out loud in Texas. <laughs> we will follow up and check that out. <laughs> Um, well, I know many of you are going to get a chance to ask questions in just a few moments, um, and I know all of you are going to ask about the famous filibuster, so I'm going to skip right over that um, and ask about what you're doing now, this new initiative that you're starting. Can you tell us a little bit about it? So one of the incredible privileges that I took from the filibuster and from my gubernatorial campaign was that there are young women who really look up to me. It's such an honor to be at the receiving end of that. And I know that I have an audience with them. I have an opportunity. I have a megaphone. And so when I lost the gubernatorial election and I went through, really, as I've described it, not the grief of losing that election, but the grief when January came and I was no longer in the Texas Senate, and I struggled for how was I going to continue to work on the things that are passionate, that I'm passionate about. And of course, women's issues are very important to me. I decided that I would try to take this opportunity to encourage young women to get more involved in the political arena. 
not necessarily just running for office, though I absolutely want to encourage that too, but our millennial women and men aren't voting. In 2008, they were 20% of the total voting population, but they didn't vote nearly in proportion to Mm -hmm. what they represent in that voting population. It gets even worse in midterm election mm -hmm. cycles. But in 2020, they're going to be 40% of the voting population in this country. And if millennials will decide that politics is actually a place they ought to speak, whether it's at the ballot box, whether it's encouraging other people to run, whether it's running themselves, they absolutely have the power to completely change the face of what's happening in state legislatures and the national, in Congress. And we would see a wholesale change in the things that we're talking about and certainly wouldn't see some of the conversations going on that we see happening on the uh, Republican primary stage right now. Now, you know, it's one of the things I get asked frequently by, by women and men of a certain generation who, who fought battles to legalize abortion and to legalize birth control before that and who, who absolutely fought for some of the, the rights and protections we have now. They sort of ask me, what's wrong with you millennial women? Don't you get it? Don't you understand how important this is? Uh, why aren't you out there marching? And there's this, uh, this real fear, I think, about that, that generations are going to to not realize how important these are. And I'm, I'm not sure that that's true of millennials, that we totally yeah. don't understand how important they are and that we aren't active. And I think maybe, but I wanted to ask you what your mm -hmm. perspective is. Do you think millennials care? Are they out Absolutely there or do they, they not care. get it? Absolutely care. The, the challenge that we face is that millennials think about it. Mm -hmm. They're the 18 to 33 year olds. In their lifetimes, they've never seen politics work, right? And so when they think about how to use their energy and their passion, because they do care, you care very, very much about these things, a lot of times they don't immediately go to the idea that the political arena is the place to solve the problem. And in fact, many of them believe absolutely otherwise. And so why should they even bother? But the examples that I try to give to help kind of press the point, just think about the recent vote on defunding Planned Parenthood at the federal level. Twice now it's come to the Senate for debate. Twice now in the U.S. Senate it's been defeated. And that's because of the people who are there. So imagine if we all decided to just disengage and stop working to elect people like Elizabeth Warren and others who fought that battle, what would happen? So many of the things that we care deeply about would be run over. Mm -hmm. And while it might be the case that we can't point to too many instances where something really positive got done, it's, I think, enough to be able to show how we've stopped some really awful things from happening. But if we had stayed home, and let other folks decide who was going to be there, that wouldn't be the case. And I believe we have the power to actually be creating an environment in the political arena where positive things are happening if we would engage enough to elect the people who are going to do it. Well, it sounds like one, yes, you can applaud that. <laughs>
Now, folks, we've got just about five minutes left of me getting to ask whatever I want, and, and then all of you will get a chance to, uh, to ask questions. So if you have a question, uh, just line up in this far aisle over here. There's a, a microphone, um, and we'll, again, just single one question. I, I, I am a tough moderator. If you try to sneak in multiple questions, I won't <laughs> allow it. Um, so just go ahead and line up as we're finishing our conversation um, if you have questions for Wendy. So you talked about that one of the things that keeps people out of politics is thinking that the system doesn't work. And one of the things I hear from, from women a lot, and really of all ages, is that they're not going into politics because they don't want to be attacked personally and in the press and, and in the spotlight. And I usually say, oh, does that happen to people? Um, <laughs> and I have to say that I sometimes think that while the, the types of attacks that you've faced, that I've faced, that so many women and, and some men as well have faced in, in this arena are absolutely awful and should not be part of our civil discourse and our civic discourse, all of that. But the truth is, we're still standing. That's right. And I sometimes worry that we put so much emphasis on how bad those attacks are that we scare people away from being involved. Yeah. What I do think you think? There, I think there's truth to that, absolutely. Um, you had a really tough time. I had a really tough time. But what we care about and what we're working on is worth it. It's worth every bit of that. And I just learned how to let it roll down my so back. So how did you do that? How did you I let it took just Twitter not off my phone. <laughs> I, I stopped reading comments to yep. Facebook posts. Um, I stopped reading comments to stories that were in the paper. I just tried to stay in the healthiest place mentally that I could. Mm -hmm and was rewarded every single day on the campaign trail by the people that I was meeting with at the rallies that we held, who made me understand why this was worth fighting for, why suffering some of those unfair criticisms are not nearly as important as the things that we're fighting for. Hi, so as a Texan and as a current board member of the Law Students for Reproductive Justice, Good I want to thank you. you both for holler, your amazing work. Holler. Yes, thank you, Sandra. <laughs> um, you've spoken really eloquently, Ms. Davis, about uh, going to the ballot box and making sure that we have strong advocates for reproductive rights and justice elected to office. Uh, but a lot of their abrogation of rights that we're seeing is also taking place in the courthouse. So yeah. I'm wondering what your advice is for advocates uh, lawyers, law students on that front? You know, when I was in law school, I, not to sound silly, but I absolutely fell in love with the power of the law because it has always been in this country the place where minority voices can ultimately be heard against a majority that's going and moving otherwise. I think it's so important to be training that generation of lawyers who are going to take up the cause of all of these issues, whether they're voting rights, whether they're reproductive rights, uh, whether they are criminal justice rights, and certainly that's risen as a very important topic of conversation in our country today. We've got to have lawyers who are committed to using the tools that the Constitution provides us to remedy what sometimes is happening in the legislative branch of this country. 
And we've seen the courts be the correcting force in many instances, marriage equality being the most recent. But in history, uh, the law is really the answer. In Texas right now, the anti-abortion law that passed that has closed about half of our clinics and threatens to close almost all of the remaining clinics if the last piece is allowed to go into effect, that is being challenged. It's uh, before the Supreme Court right now. I believe they're going to take it up. And thank goodness for the plaintiffs who are brave enough to put their names and their money on the line to take it forward and the lawyers who were trained to be able to do that. So for all of the people that you're working with, hallelujah, cheering you on, um, you're doing the right thing. You really are. <laughs> so I want to thank you both for joining us this evening as a board member of Inforum, and thank you all for joining us uh, tonight on your Friday evening. Um, Wendy, kudos to you. You've got great souls in the pink sneakers and the gray stilettos, so you can do the spectrum. My question to you, aside from finding a friend or a family member or a buddy in Texas to get to the polls and vote is, what's your one ask for everyone here in the audience? What can we do to, to continue the mission and get more people involved um, and make an impact. With John Zipper of Commonwealth Club, right after this. Every time you have an this. opportunity to talk to someone about voting, you should do it. You know, whether it's the person who's doing your hair or the person that you took your car in to be worked on or the clerk at a department store, a lot of people don't vote because no one ever talks to them about it. Um, and I think that the more we help each other understand what's at stake, the more we'll get people to engage. When I was a young woman struggling to make ends meet, if someone had helped me understand that by voting, I could actually be electing people who would support policies that might help me, I would have gone to vote. I truly would have. I just didn't know enough to make that connection. I never even thought about it in my day-to-day -day busy life. The other thing we can all do is work to make voting accessibility easier. And of course, here in California, your governor just signed a very instrumental law that's going to achieve that by allowing everyone. It's fabulous. But, you know, supporting candidates who are going to work to actually uh, enhancing the franchise rather than trying to impede it is really important as well. We'll be back with more here on Friends on Fridays. Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on on Facebook. Like us at facebook.com forward slash progressive voices. On the Progressive Voices Facebook page, we update the stories that our hosts like Tom Hartman, Stephanie Miller, Bill Press, and Leslie Marshall will be talking about during their shows. And we share great news, commentaries, opinion pieces, and videos from all over the progressive world. Always progressive, always on. Be part of the progressive conversation. Like us at facebook.com forward slash progressive voices. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. It's an honor to have you here tonight. Thank you so much for coming and for your uh, support of uh, the underprivileged everywhere. 
And um, one thing I was hearing is California, Texas, we're both in states that have a gross national product that exceeds that of many European countries. And so more than any other states in the nation, we're probably peers. So, but yet there's still an adversarial relationship and some conceit on both sides. So what do you think that Texas can learn from California and what can California learn from Texas? Wow, what a great question. That is a really great question. I think, you know, California, when I think about what I admire about this state most, it's the respect for everyone's individual liberties and freedoms. We talk a good game about that in Texas. We love to throw around the word liberty. And in fact, Governor Perry had two boots. One of them was named Liberty and the other one was named Freedom. Um, But I feel like here, you know, the money is put where the mouth is, so to speak. And I think we could certainly learn a lot about that. In Texas, we've prided ourselves, I think rightly so, on trying to create a good climate for business. Now, do we pass that line too much sometimes in terms of not having appropriate air quality and other regulation? Yes. But I think somewhere there's a balance to be struck and California might be able to learn some lessons from some of the economic incentive tools that we've successfully employed. Although your economy certainly isn't isn't doing too bad, so you're doing something right. I won't quibble with our our special guest here about our job creation numbers right now. But, uh, um, but, you know, one thing I think that California can learn from Texas is I was just incredibly inspired by the people who flooded into the Capitol during your filibuster and who... Partway through the filibuster, you started to run out of stories of women who needed access to abortion care, and your staff put out a call for more stories. And how, do you remember how many stories 16, came? 16,000. Like, during that day, while you were conducting the filibuster, this is not a weeks-long campaign, right? That's like, right. in a few hours. Yeah. How many of you can imagine this happening in Sacramento? <laughs> yeah, see, no, no. <laughs> Because I think in California, we're not engaged in the way we need to be in our state capital. And perhaps uh, because there is a a more partisan divide in Texas, people are more engaged. And and I would personally love it. We could use a little bit of that sometimes. It really does. And that's what happened that day. People were so angry. And it really was an extraordinary day. The capital... I was told by DPS officers in its entire history had never had to be closed because mm-hmm. it was filled to capacity, but they had to close it that day because they were there scared were of those women. Thousands and thousands <laughs> and thousands of people who were there and they filled it to capacity. Yeah. Um, and it's to me one of the most beautiful examples of democracy in action because my filibuster did not get over the midnight deadline. What got us over the midnight deadline was the fact that the people who were there, who were in the Senate gallery and who had been so respectful all day, observing the decorum and the rules of the Senate, were watching senators break and bend those rules to try to bring an end and essentially silence their voices through the person who was speaking on their behalf. 
they got so angry. And finally, at about 15 minutes before midnight, they stood up and they started screaming. And the secretary of the Senate was trying to take that vote, a voice vote, and she was not able to take it before the clock ticked 12.03. And it was the people that made that happen. And if you ever you know, doubt the power of our voices in the process. It's a great example of what they can. Absolutely. And now we're going to close with what is a tradition here at Inforum to ask all of our speakers the following question. Are you ready? Mm -hmm. Are you sure? Are you ready? Ready. Wendy Davis. What is your 60-second idea to change the world? Start the clock. (laughs) It really goes back to what I've been talking about much of the night. If every 18-year-old were automatically registered to vote the day they turned 18, Mm -hmm. if we had same-day voter registration, if every state in the country allowed mail-in ballots to be mailed to every registered voter in their state, we would see a completely different United States of America, and it would solve a lot of problems. Absolutely. And for those of you who really do want to get passionate about Sacramento, some of what she's talking about is going to be legislation this coming year. So show up at the Capitol, make some noise. Thanks so much for tuning in today. For more on us and other programs or podcasts you might have missed, you can head to michellemeow.com. See you all next week. Tune into the Michelle Miao Show weekdays at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 Eastern on Progressive Voices. Thank you.